0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock.
1: Tech story is front and centre. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve?
2: Your connection from the London
0: market close to the US market action.
1: A significant sell-off in European assets. It
0: feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This
1: is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy
0: Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable, We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. We have much to talk about on the cable this evening. European equities a bit softer today. A little bit of outperformance in the FTSE 100, but it was still down by two-tenths of 1%. A number of factors coming together today. You've had um, some retail data over in the United States that indicates maybe the Fed has to go further. And In fact, I think Goldman Sachs has today upgraded its terminal uh, rate expectations for the Fed. Uh, You've also had here in Europe uh, the missile strike in Poland. I think just reinforcing, Alex, once again, the geopolitical risks that that Europe faces. Uh, And that's maybe being priced back in after Mm -hmm. a, a good run for European stocks.
0: Yep, uh, absolutely. And here in the U.S., that also brings debate, like, how much do you need to be pricing into the dollar if the dollar's peaked? Do you have a geopolitical risk premium in the euro still? Um, Or do you need to start buying the euro if the dollar's peaked? So, competing forces um, happening. Um, You mentioned other news here, you know, Target, definitely going to take a look at that. A really terrible inventory management on that. But also, Micron uh, warned of their outlook for next year. And then, Lowe's doing really well. So, apparently, you're not going to be buying a house, but you're definitely going to be renovating. We're back to that story now, uh, when it comes to the housing market here, guy.
1: Absolutely, we're just kind of working our way through the the retail story in the states. Uh, I think it's relevant because it tells us a lot about what's happening with the U.S. consumer. The U.S. consumer potentially starting to trade down, but still yeah. spending, which is hugely significant. Uh, we'll talk more about that a little bit later, Alex. First, let's get some headlines with Charlie Pellett.
3: hi Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Energy bills drove UK inflation to a stronger-than-forecast 41-year high in October, adding to pressure on the government and Bank of England to act. The Office for National Statistics says the Consumer Prices Index rose to 11.1% from a year ago. Now, that was higher than the Bank of England's forecast for inflation to peak at 10.9% and more than five times the central bank's 2% target. A study by Bloomberg Economics finds house prices in the UK may fall by as much as 20% as the Bank of England pushes up the costs of borrowing. Sellers have already started trimming asking prices in the UK market in an effort to sell their homes. The property search website, Rightmove, says prices fell 1.1% this month after a 0.9% gain in October, but that cuts are the norm in the autumn when sellers want to wrap up transactions before Christmas. Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt will confirm he is lifting the cap on U.K. banker bonuses when he delivers his autumn statement tomorrow. The policy was a highly controversial feature of the disastrous fiscal statement made by Hunt's predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng, in September. The cap, first introduced by the European Union in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, limits bankers' bonuses to two times their salary. That is the latest from the news. S Guy Johnson back to you now in London. Charlie Pellett, thank you very much indeed.
1: Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes time. He will continue to keep us updated on all of the headlines. As Charlie was mentioning, UK inflation accelerating to a 41-year high, 11.1% the headline figure, RPI obviously a little bit higher. Uh, This is the highest number we've seen since 1981. This was the Prime Minister talking about that figure
4: my absolute number one priority is making sure that we deal with the economic situation that we face at home Uh, you know with more news of inflation today it's the number one thing that's on people's minds it's the thing that's causing most anxiety opening up bills seeing the emails come in with rising prices uh, and that's why it's right that we grip it and tomorrow the chancellor will set out a plan that will enable us to do that
1: energy prices groceries all driving inflation higher at the moment. Uh, the Prime Minister speaking at the G20 in Bali. As he says, we're going to get the fiscal statement tomorrow, the autumn statement. Uh, there's going to be um, a lot of taxes um, and a lot of cuts. The the tax and no-spend budget, uh, as some people are describing it. Let's talk about, A, that, and B, the inflation number and what impact these two have uh, in combination. Philip Aldrich joins us now. Bloomberg's Philip Aldrich joins us now in the studio here in London. Let's talk about that inflation number first of all. It was a very high number, is it as high as it
4: gets? It may not be. A lot will depend on the because we have this energy price cap here in the UK so yep. uh household bills set every reset every 3 months now. Um, the uh, the government has put a put a ceiling on uh, the bills setting until April. It, they may re, If they set reset in April at the market price, you're going to see inflation go even higher at that point. The, the, but the government is planning, there is going to be some announcement on uh, support beyond a, mm-hmm. for those April bills um, in the fiscal statement tomorrow. We haven't got the details on that yet, but that will be critical to determining whether this was peak inflation or not.
0: Okay, this is what I don't get. Uh, Sunak's talking about uh have to cool inflation, they're going to attack inflation, they're going to do that in essence by probably raising taxes and cutting spending. How does that help someone who can't pay their bills?
4: Well, uh, it it doesn't obviously if you if you're going to be if you're going to be uh, raising taxes and, and cutting spending then it which doesn't Which isn't that help. what
0: they're going to basically do tomorrow?
4: The, uh, that is what that is what they're going to do tomorrow. But the so here's so the one bit which kind of it's slightly outside that is this energy bill support scheme and that was originally planned with by trusts in that disastrous 44 days that she was in charge. Um, they, they were planning a two-year cap on bills at £2,500, which was going to cost £150 billion or whatever for over the two years. Um, that is now stopping in April. They're going to have a new policy after that. And it's really, that's the point. Then they will have a target, more targeted measure. And instead of it being all households who get their bills capped, you can actually provide support for the poorer households for that very reason, that they'll be less able to afford it. So that will be better use of public money, uh, and it, um, it'll cost less, but it will pr- potentially provide an equal amount of support to to the poorest um, poorest people. Let, let's talk about how the Bank of England is viewing all of this.
1: Um, the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has been giving testimony to the Treasury Select Committee this afternoon. Interesting lesson. Um, I got the impression, certainly after the last press conference that he delivered, that that they were... Taking their foot off the brake, that it, that it, the interest big jumbo interest rate hikes were mm. becoming less likely. That was certainly my sort of takeaway from what we heard last time around. But then I look at today's data and I'm thinking maybe that 75
4: basis point hike should still be on the table. Yeah, well, what markets are saying? What half a point uh, in December? Uh, they they are saying there are more rates hikes coming. They're not saying there's not not more rate yep. hikes coming. What what they were saying is that they there won't be as many rate hikes as the bank as the markets were predicting at the time of their forecast, which was five point two five percent terminal yep. rate. The uh, now nobody knows where it's going to end up, but they ba- they basically clearly want to to, to finish it around four percent. That seems to be that seems to be the sort of indication if you read the runes and you listen to other economists, etc. But um, yeah that they there is there is if this there is, is not peak coming. inflation, if there is the possibility yeah. that this is not peak inflation. Can it's, the Bank of England make that? A, a, if inflation goes up again, it's going to be very, very hard for them to sit on their hands and say, guys, it's not our problem. And so they. this is why, you know, the, the whole IMF, this whole you trust government blew up at the IMF partly because everybody there was saying you have to work hand in glove. Government and Bank of England have got to work together on this, and that is why this this energy price cap announcement is actually going to be very important to the mm-hmm. Bank of England because if if peak inflation is in April next year and they and they have not raised rates or they've stopped raising rates at that point, everyone will be saying how how is that possible? So well, you know it, it, there's got to be this kind of uh, working together, this collaboration. Well,
0: but to that point. What did we learn about core inflation today? Like, I hear you on the energy thing, but if if that's going to be somewhat handled by politics rather than actual market forces, is core peaking out?
4: Core? Uh, you, there was a slight hint of core peaking out. It's, it didn't get any higher. Um, so 6.5%, I think, was the core inflation reading today. But... um. Uh, uh, yeah and, and that that in a way that has been creeping up so that in a way is a is, is a good sign that the sort of underlying second round effects of inflation may be stabilizing uh, you know to be honest there's there's still a lot of you know um, <coughs> inertia in the wage market you're going to see i i suspect we're going to see wages continuing to rise in, in 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 the months ahead as people try to catch up with the with the growth in consumer prices
1: let's talk about the fiscal statement tomorrow uh, and again talk about timing if the fiscal statement frontloads the pain the bank of england has one course of action it can probably take if the fiscal statement pushes the pain further out outside the bank of england's forecasting window then presumably it has another course of action how important is the timing in terms of the impact that the fiscal policy will have how important will that be in terms of the bank of england's rate setting yes yeah, so that's decisions? that's a
4: really important point it's just the balance of the fiscal um the, the program of cuts effectively the austerity yep. that's coming the um I, the thinking is that quite a bit of so, you know i don't know, half of it may come in the latter latter part of the uh Five-year forecast. Um, you've got to remember that the bank's signalling in in its uh, in its forecast round at the, at the announcement rate decision on November the third was that we don't need to do much rate much more on rate rises because we've got a recession coming. So that that is already going to be bearing down on inflation. Um, that's that is the argument that they've got there. And so if there is uh, if there's more if there's an excessive amount of fiscal tightening at the front end of the uh, of the fiscal package tomorrow, they they may feel like they don't. Really need to do much at all, yep. um, uh, but because that would potentially push you know, everyone further into recession and kill, kill demand even more quickly. But um, I, I, there is a but. That's the thing. This is this is going to be a careful balance. I suspect you, the reason why you're going to do f- front load some of it is you have to demonstrate to the markets. You've got to well, be credible. okay,
0: but so, but but this really bugs me because then I feel like the guilt market and guilt investors are dictating what your fiscal policy is going to be.
4: Don't they always? Isn't a, do, it?
0: But, but it, do it, they? Th- but, but to this kind of extent, I mean, you can make an yeah. argument that the reason why Hun's going to have to come out tomorrow uh, and be super strict is because there was such a huge fallout after Truss and quasi Quartang just that wrecked is, the guilt market.
4: That, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the this is so. This is about restoring fiscal credibility, this is about establishing the stability on which, possibly in the March budget, um, there will be something more akin to a growth plan and actually some vision for the future but right now because they're trying to stabilize everything after the i mean so so one of the things uh, uh bailey the bank of england governor just told the treasury select committee as that is that the international reputation of the uk has been hit by the trusts and quartet period um and it and broadbent the deputy governor said uh you no know, tomorrow's event will be partly to address that uh, that loss of credibility and that lot of loss of investor trust. So it's very much, you're right, this is this is about restoring, this is about the markets telling us what to do, us yes. saying, yeah, we'll do that, um, and then we can move on. We can get back to normal, and then we can move on to a, to a more normal relationship. But, yeah, um, what was it, J- James Carville said, you know, wish I could come back as the bond market because that'd yeah. be the most powerful thing in the world. Yeah, it felt like that faded for a while, but that was
1: in the year of low interest rates. Now that rates <laughs> are going back up again, it feels uh, a little bit more relevant. If UK house prices drop by twenty percent, what would be the impact on the economy? Well, I mean, you, well, we because that's that th- those numbers are now being talked about. Yeah,
4: so so it's a really interesting piece by um, uh, Jeremy Rush at Bloomberg and uh, economists. Uh, he uh, it, his point is that that is that that is a structural overvalue of the house, housing yep. market at the moment. Not that we're going to have an immediate twenty percent decline. And as as he said, what happens is you have these structural overvalues for long periods, and then you get this shock, and then you get an adjustment. Now he doesn't know when the adjustment is necessarily going to come. Uh, if we get a twenty percent fall in house prices, that's what happened in the financial crisis. It's going to yep. be caused by massive amount of unemployment. It's going to be caused by you know a, a big a deep recession. I, you know, I, I feel like. It's not going to be the cause of it. But when house prices drop like that, you get a massive confidence shock. People don't spend. They they effectively just hoard, don't they? Because they're they're scared about outgoings and whether they can keep their home.
0: And just for perspective here, we're going to go through the same thing, too. The Dallas Fed had a survey out that said that U.S. house prices may also tumble as much as 20% as mortgage rates really top out. And that the mortgage debt servicing payments uh, could be as much as 6% of disposable income versus 3%. I'm just saying. like You guys aren't alone here. Like We're going to be having some well, deep pain no, too no, we're, we're,
4: <laughs> exactly like we're all in it together we're in a bad housing market world together
0: great i'm trying to sell an apartment you so with your
1: strong dollars over there
0: it really hurts um, okay uh but before we wrap up here um i just want to understand how investors are positioned into tomorrow do we have an idea is it a buy the rumor or sell the news thing what's your best read I, I know you're an economy reporter but what's your best read on this
4: I think that so what the government is clearly trying to do is is uh make sure that there is zero market reaction tomorrow. They want everything out there. They want it to be everything is, it's is been a lot of leaks. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. they, I mean that. That's it. It, it basically feel like there's they, and and Jeremy I Hunt felt said like that they, with the mini budget be, too, though. It, it was absolutely yeah. The the um and in the March budget though, last uh, at the beginning of the year, there was a lot of leaks. But but Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, said there will be no rabbit in this hat. He basically <laughs> it, it, they, they want to have they want everybody they're going to deliver what everybody expected, and everybody will say, oh, that's what I expected, and it'll be incredibly boring. That's what their ambition is, I, as far as I understand it. So. Um, you know, the idea is that where markets sit today, they just—they they don't want to see any rupture. I mean, that's the whole point about, I suppose, right now the markets ruling things. They don't want to upset them at all. They don't want to cause any volatility. Yeah. Just, just finally, how long does
1: it? T- how long could it take to restore credibility? Is—is is tomorrow kind of
0: hmm.
1: one and done?
4: Is it? Are we? Is it over? Is if if, if it's sensible, the market forgives.
0: You have ten seconds.
4: Yeah (laughs) Broadbent and Bailey said It will take some time To recover (laughs) credibility
1: Philip Always great stuff Thank you very much indeed Bloomberg's Philip Aldrich Uh, Up next We're going to talk about That strike in Poland This is Bloomberg
2: This is The Cable With Guy Johnson And Alex Steele On Bloomberg Radio
0: Good evening, you're listening to The Cable and Bloomberg D.A.B. Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It was a very tense 24 hours for NATO, Europe, Ukraine, and Russia, and the U.S. Uh, NATO and Poland's leaders eventually came to the conclusion that there was no indication that a missile that struck Polish territory late Tuesday evening was an intentional Russian attack as governments in the military alliance moved to defuse this kind of incident. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, speaking earlier, talking about the fact that the incident was probably the cause of the Ukrainian air defense missile fire to defend Ukraine against Russian cruise missile attacks. The reason why this distinction is very important is that if it had been any kind of direct attack, Poland could invoke Article 4 of NATO or even Article 5 Article four is that any member who feels its security is threatened can invoke it and summon the rest of the alliance. Article five is that if a victim uh, of NATO is, if a country of NATO was the victim of an armed attack, every other member will rally to them. Critical, critical, critical points. Um. Nevertheless, this seemed like a fire drill as to how NATO would respond to Russia upping the stakes uh, in its war with Ukraine. So Guy and I sat down with Fabrice Poitier. He is CEO of Rasmussen Global. He's also former head of policy planning for two NATO generals. And I started by asking him how thin the line was to Article 4 and Article 5 that NATO was trying to walk.
5: Well, I think it's more how closely are we trading the line to, to Article 4, because clearly we have had conflicting reports as to whether the uh, missiles or rockets that have hit the Polish territory were uh, of Russian or Ukrainian origin. And I think this is obviously very important to get the forensics uh, right. However, it's also important to have the overall context clear and right. Whatever happened has happened because of a massive, actually the largest, Uh, missile strike campaign launched by Russia since the 24th of February. And because of that, you you necessarily have some Uh, incidents such as the one we've seen yesterday. So at the end, that it is uh, related to some Ukrainian um, missiles or rockets being misfired or losing or going on the wrong trajectory, or Russian ones, I think the bottom line is that Russia has escalated, and when you escalate, you increase the risk, and you're increasing security for both Ukraine and its neighbours.
1: Fabrice, did we learn anything about how NATO would respond to an accidental Russian incursion into NATO. If this had been a Russian missile that would have struck, how different would the response have been?
5: I think the the response would be proportionate to whether, first, this is uh, Ukrainian or Russian, and if it's Russian, whether it is intended or not intended. I think this is very important because this is how you make a difference between the threat and the direct attack. And if it was not intended, but still a Russian rocket or, or, or missile, I think you could expect uh, from NATO not just a collective statement, but also to take some defensive action. And Article 4 is strong enough to lead to potentially the allies together to decide on reinforcing Polish air defense systems and even potentially Ukrainian air defense systems. This is what happened with Turkey when Turkey invoked mm-hmm. Article 4 during the Syria war.
0: Uh, Fabrice, what kind of contingency plans within NATO should be being discussed right now after what happened over the last 24
5: hours? Well, I think hopefully they don't discuss them, but they don't—they they just health check them that these contingency plans are fit for these kind of scenarios. That's that's what I would hope. Uh, and second, I think again, it's very important to send a very clear message, both in words and in action, to Russia, that under no circumstances Russia should and can cross the red line that we've crossed, we've drawn on the NATO territory. And second, that the kind of missile strike campaign that Russia has unleashed yesterday uh, will be increasingly unsuccessful because we are, provide, we are going to provide yep. even more defense systems to the Ukrainians. Fabrice,
1: how good is the communication between NATO and Russia right now? If there was an accidental um, um, missile strike into Poland from Russia, how quickly could the could the NATO officials ascertain whether it was accidental or not?
5: You mean the kind of hotline between the NATO commanders yeah, I, and, and Russian what, ones? Are they talking? Well, that, that I, I, I'm not sufficiently inside NATO to tell you whether they are doing so. Uh, we will hope yes, but from my experience. The dialogue and the hotline was already highly political and in a way uh, very difficult back after 2014-15. So I will assume that now there is barely a dialogue. I understand that there is some high-level dialogue between the U.S. and, and Russia uh, on matters of strategic uh, uh, issues such as nuclear weapons. So I don't think there is that kind of deconflicting line going on. Uh, we could wish there would be one, but the problem is there is that the Russians, both commanders and, and senior ministries of defense, officials, are just not speaking the truth. They are actually contributing to false information, the false flags, uh, such as this kind of threat of the Ukrainian uh, uh, kind of fabricating some kind of nuclear device, which was what the Shoigu, the, yep. the Russian minister of Defense, did. So, so I think they cannot be trusted for the kind of information they provide.
1: Fabrice Poitier, the CEO of the Rasmussen uh, Group, Rasmussen Global, former head of policy planning for the last two NATO secretary generals, um, the current one and the last one. Alex, this is the problem. I think communication is is really where I get worried. We have seen a lot of confusion over the last 24 hours as to where this missile came from. Was it Russian? Was it Ukrainian? the importance of that information, absolutely critical. Now, the situation has been de-escalated because it turns out it's probably a Ukrainian missile. But if it wasn't, what would have happened? I I just don't know at this point.
0: Yeah, and it feels like, for lack of a better word, it was a fire drill for NATO to see how quickly they could get together, communicate, and what the reaction response uh, would be. And you can definitely see those in Eastern Europe having a different type of reaction function than, say... Those more of Western Europe, and and that could become an issue if this gets to be more entrenched,
1: and very quickly. Yeah, that's the problem. I, the, the, you talk about the fog of war. I, this was an example of it: a complete lack of information. Mm-hmm. You got very senior leaders out of the G20 in Bali. I, a lot of people were woken up in the middle of the night trying to figure out what was happening here. Things could have things could have taken a very different trajectory. Anyway, I'm glad that they didn't. Mm-hmm. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening, you are listening to on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London, just past 5.30, over in the U.K. But I do want to get a quick check in here on U.S. markets. It's been quite a day. Um, we're off the lows, but it's still kind of yucky out. You got Nasdaq 100 uh, is down by over 1%. The S&P is off by six tenths of percent There's a couple moving parts to this. A tech getting hit the hardest because Micron had a 2023 outlook warning. They're also going to be cutting capital spending. So the read-through to bigger tech and also the chip guys, not so great. Um, also on the downside, advanced Advanced Auto Parts uh, had pretty bleak results as well, which you think would have been good. If you're not going to buy a new car, shouldn't you be repairing your old one? But APP uh, not holding up very well. And Target uh, saw a pretty bad quarter, bad outlook, they're going to have to get $3 billion of cost savings somewhere without laying anybody off. So all of that kind of weighing on the overall indices. That's a quick snapshot. We're going to get more into retail in just a moment. Uh, for more news, here is Charlie Pellett. Hi,
3: thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Alex Steele, Prime Minister Sunak, says he did not discuss a prospective trade deal with the U.S. when he met with American President Joe Biden today, suggesting Britain has given up for now on what was once touted as one of the great prizes of Brexit. Sunak told reporters at the G20 summit in Bali, quote, we did not discuss the trade deal in particular, but we did discuss our economic partnership. Sunak's failure to bring up the prospect of a trade deal suggests an acceptance for now by the British government that it's not on the cards in the near future. Qatari World Cup organizers have apologized to a Danish television station whose live broadcast from a street in Doha was interrupted by security staff who threatened to break camera equipment. Qatar's Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy acknowledged in a statement that journalists from the TV2 channel were, quote, mistakenly interrupted. The incident five days before the World Cup start revisits a subject that had been a sensitive tournament for tournament organizers who have denied claims that. There are strict limits on where media can film in Qatar. And London real estate broker Charles McDowell has sold six luxury central London homes in the last six months. Five of the buyers were Americans. The broker's recent sales involve homes in affluent areas including Holland Park, Notting Hill, and Chelsea. Three of the properties sold for over 25 million pounds, while another nearly hit the 50 million pound mark. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: All right, Charlie, thank you so very much. It's going to target for just a moment, because here's kind of interesting, you know, we're well off the lows of the session. At one point, the stock was down 15%. We're now only down by about 11%. And it feels like we're trying to understand if there's a macro signal here, I'm going to not shop at Target, I'm going to go to Walmart instead, because they have cheaper stuff and more groceries, or if this is a Target-specific issue, they just totally misjudged the consumer and just had too much inventory.
1: I, I yeah I think it's probably a bit of everything.
0: Or both. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, both. I I
1: think that probably So I think there probably is a little bit of target specific stuff in here. But I but I think so I was thinking about this earlier, should we have known that Target was going to have a tough time once we saw the Walmart numbers? Because basically what we got from Walmart were people in the Walmart numbers were was was a clear indication that consumers are trading down mm-hmm. and they're consuming uh, and they're trading out of um, general merchandise apparel etc into groceries as well now target is not strong in groceries but it is strong in general merchandise so basically walmart told us that people are trading away from that into mm-hmm. groceries they're basically having to trade down uh, walmart from a price point point of view is below where target is like in some ways the writing was on the wall
0: yes i just also think that maybe the reaction we're seeing in the market is what happens when you beat when you miss even lowered expectations. And expectations had already been lowered for Target. And then, if you miss it, then your stock gets cr- the, g- gets crushed even more. I think maybe Absolutely. that's one of the lessons uh, to take away from it.
1: Maybe there's also an indication that maybe some sales are coming, which I know yeah. Alex is quite excited about.
0: I'm waiting, man. I have like all this stuff in my cart. Like right? I'm waiting for the sale. I will not buy full price for anything. So I'm just I'm waiting. I'll, I'm your barometer. At the end of the day, Precisely. even for designer stuff, I'll, I'll even wait for sales.
1: When Alex starts shopping. Um, we will know. She talks of designer stuff. So let's talk, as she takes me in that direction uh, very eloquently, uh, about one of the big deals in the luxury end of the retail market. Estee Lauder has agreed to buy Tom Ford, Tom Ford the business, not the man, at a valuation of (laughs) $2.8 billion. Now, this would be Estee Lauder's largest ever deal. For more on this, we're joined by Bloomberg Reporter, um, the, the Bloomberg Reporter that covers high-end retail and personal care companies, Jeanette Newman. Jeanette, I remember covering when, when Gucci got bought, and that was Dominic de Soleil and Tom Ford kind of on the other side of that deal. This is the next big deal that they've done many, many years later. I'm not going to say how many years because it will age me quite a lot. <laughs> Why is this deal happening right now?
2: I think well and, and and also it's I mean it's interesting we've you know we've we've reported that uh, Gucci owner Kering was also interested in yeah. potentially buying um the Tom Ford the Tom Ford brand but that obviously didn't come that didn't come about I mean Was it the, was think, it the catalyst think, for it though I I think I mean it's it's not completely clear why this is coming about um, right now I think part of it is Tom Ford the man you know he's uh, he's 61 um, I think he's interested in you know having things having things settled. Let's say in his uh, in his business. I mean, I think for Estee Lauder specifically, this is there's you know the defensive and offensive part of the of the, of the deal. Let's say the defensive part of it is that Estee Lauder has had a licensing agreement um, to basically you know manufacture and sell Tom Ford's beauty line. For the past nearly nearly two decades, that licensing agreement was due to end in 2030. Mm-hmm. Now that may seem, to me that seems like a, a very long way away, but in the you know in the world of um, high end beauty, it's not that far away. And so when that ended, then there was the risk that uh, Estee Lauder could potentially lose this incredibly lucrative um, licensing agreement, which they have said you know brought them about a billion dollars in revenue selling Tom Ford's lipsticks, the um, high end fragrances. Um, yeah. So a billion dollars in, in revenue each, each year.
6: So
0: here, here, here's the question. It, it seems like the takeaway was that this was really like a cosmetics deal, uh, mm-hmm. perfume, high-end cosmetics. But they have this sort of fashion retail part. Tom mm-hmm. Ford's going to be around for another year to help steer it. When he goes, though, who's going to make the designer cute stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's exactly right, Alex. I think that is the... You know potential execution risk with with this deal. It's a it's a pretty complicated deal. Is I mean all all the parts are interconnected, right? It's it's Tom Ford's fashion business, which is actually quite small revenue wise, but that's what gives the glamour and the glitz to the beauty lines, right? To the to the fragrances and then to his his sunglasses as, as well. So all the parts have to work well. He has really um, so nice sunglasses.
0: Old- just want to point that it
2: does out, have very nice lenses. All the all the parts have to work well, um, so that all these different um, you know uh, businesses that are that are involved in steel can make um, can make money. But I do think that's the execution risk here. It's, you know, when Tom Ford leaves, the companies have said he's expected to leave at the end of. Next at the end of next year, um, presumably some of his, you know, the designers that he's worked with will stay on, um, but but that is a risk. With um, so you have Zenia, the Italian company Zenia, that is going to, going to expand and extend its current licensing agreement, um, to to make some of the, um, the fashion apparel for Tom Ford. They're working with Estee Lauder, which is, has, the, has the beauty line. And then you have another Italian company, Marcolin, which is doing the manufacturing and yep. selling of the eyeglasses. So a lot of moving parts there.
1: Do you think caring Gucci was ever a serious contender for this? It would have had a nice circularity to it.
2: It would have had it would have had a very nice circularity. I mean, as, as, as we have reported, as far as we understand, um, I mean they were they were definitely they were definitely in the running, and and I think you know part of it, as I mentioned, now with this deal with Estee Lauder, there's three different companies involved, right? The two Italian companies and Estee Lauder. Yeah. That's a bit more complicated than just having one company caring um, that would have been working with Tom. Tom Ford. So I think that, you know, that that would have been a potential benefit to the caring deal. Yeah. I think the difference is, um, again, Estee Lauder had the license, has the Gina. licensing agreement in 2020. Got to leave yeah. it
0: there. Thanks a lot, Jeanette Newman. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. Listen to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. In case you missed it... President, former President Trump announced his candidacy for the 2024 presidential election last night. The headline in the Post said it all. There was no headline. New York Post on the bottom, there was a small strip that said, Florida man makes announcement, page 26. Unheard of for the Rupert Murdoch empire to turn against Trump in this fashion. Let's get more on this. Emily Wilkins uh, joins us now. Um, we'll talk about all different kinds of things. I don't want to spend too much time on Trump. But what was your read-through from yesterday?
6: I I read through from yesterday that Trump really does no longer have the core of the Republican Party behind him. Uh, This is something that we've seen kind of happen with other controversial figures that have come along, that everyone is behind them until they start losing elections. And for a lot of Republicans, what we saw with the midterms was the last straw. You saw a number of Trump's endorsed candidates go down. You saw Republicans uh, lose their opportunity to take back the Senate. You saw them almost lose the House and giving them only a very, very small governing majority. And a lot of folks within the Republican Party are now placing blame at Trump's feet. And I think that was kind of reflected in how you saw some of the playback of the, of the coverage last night. The sense that, you know, this is everyone's kind of been there, done that. Uh, we, we've seen this song and, and dance before. Certainly there will be people in the party who will remain loyal to Trump. It'll be very interesting to see how the next two years play out at this yeah. point. Uh, but there's definitely been, been a vibe shift within the Republican Party.
1: Emily. It, it got a very muted response to Alex's point about the Post. Um, I, the fact that it really wasn't covered by the Post is hugely significant.
0: Florida it's, man. That's like literally yeah. the worst thing you could possibly say to Donald Trump. Florida yeah. man. Oh, and then and then they picked it up on page 26. That's, Did yeah. you see no, how that was the, the actual bit.
6: story was?
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that was the work of genius. Um, is that going to embolden others now to to get out of the gate? Like, are we now going to see a whole slew of people coming out and announcing for twenty-four?
6: Well, we've already, of course, uh, seen Ron DeSantis be very much in the spotlight, um, you know, kind of a lot of attention on him at this point. But I think it's always good to remember that we are so early on in the 2024 cycle at this point, and that usually at this point, the predictions that everyone has about who's going to be the nominee or who's going to be the top person, you just see so many things happen and change. Other people step into the spotlight, pick up poll numbers. Certainly there are plenty of folks, uh, Nikki Haley, Kristi Noem, uh, I've seen Glenn Young, the governor of Virginia, their names kind of be tossed around. We'll see. Each of them is probably gaming out right now when is going to be the best time for them to announce. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is some strategy in going first, but there's also some strategy in in waiting a little bit and Mm -hmm. and then kind of coming out with a crafted message at the right time.
0: Let me just read to everyone what happened on page 26 of the New York Post. Ready? Headline, been there, done that. With just 720 days to go before the next election, a Florida retiree made the surprise announcement Tuesday night that he was running for president. In a move that no political pundit saw coming, avid golfer Donald J. Trump kicked things off at Mar-a-Lago, his resort, (laughs) and classified documents library. I mean, it— it goes on. This is but from
1: Murdoch, though. This is Rupert Murdoch. This is Rupert Murdoch. Which is the significance of this. This
0: sounds like it should belong in The Onion, which is basically like a mock paper. Um, but Rupert Murdoch has definitely turned the tide on this. Um, anyway, I just was reading it and I had to share it. Um, Emily, at the same time, you have Kevin McCarthy's trying to make a run for Speaker. Does he make it? Um, does he have to make concessions? Where is the House power struggle at this moment?
6: So it is likely that Kevin McCarthy is going to have to make concessions to be speaker. And we know that because we saw Republicans get into a room yesterday behind closed doors and vote on whether they wanted Kevin McCarthy to be their nominee. Most of the Republicans said yes, but we've got about 31 or so who said that they didn't want that. And what they're trying to do here is to get leverage for the next six weeks. The next six weeks, the party figures out what the rules are going to be, where the power structures are going to be for the next two years. And it is completely to the advantage of McCarthy's uh, Republican caucus, knowing that they have only a very slight majority to work with, to use that leverage to their advantage to say, hey, you only have a couple votes. You absolutely need us on your side. Here's what we want. What are you able to give us? And I've talked to to, to far right lawmakers who have said that they want to see yep. McCarthy give more power to rank and file members. So I think we, we still have a while to go, but, okay. but that's kind of one of the big things we're going to be looking for.
1: Emily, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Emily Wilkins, our congressional reporter. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, One thing we haven't talked about is crypto. The fallout of the rapid collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX is now spreading even more across the crypto world. Um, The billionaire Winklevoss Twins are getting hit now through liquidity squeeze at their lending partner. Uh, Genesis um, Gemini Trust, which is co-founded by the the Twins, um, announced its yield product for retail investors will also uh, stop redemptions. Um, It's getting complicated. It's getting ugly. Uh, Kitty Greifeld joins us now, who literally came into the studio and said, I'm so knee-deep in crypto, I don't know anything else. (laughs) Did did I sum that up? Yeah, pretty much. much.
7: I know that Trump made an announcement or
0: something along those lines. There were some fun things. You should check out page 26 in the New York Post. But, um,
7: okay, what do we know right now, and what are the questions that you're asking for the next 24 hours? Okay, so what we know right now, the big headline that there had been a lot of speculation about was coming was that Genesis... Halted withdrawals. So we know that BlockFi obviously halted withdrawals earlier in the week. The Wall Street Journal had reported that that lender was preparing for bankruptcy. And when I've been talking to sources over the past week and a half, they've said, "Watch the lenders." We know that Alameda, which is SBF's trading arm, was one of the biggest borrowers out there. So to see this from Genesis halting withdrawals, uh, hiring advisors, this was expected, and we finally got the news in it. Alex, like you teased, I mean, the, the fallout from there, uh, the, the Gemini uh, from Winkle, the Winklevoss twins. First of all, let me also say, there's a lot of G names in crypto. I know. Like, that's it's, the first thing you need to know. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> but yeah, it just really goes to show how interconnected still this entire industry is.
1: How, how do the interconnections work? Because everybody is now trying to distance themselves from everybody else. The counterparty risk. Katie is 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 certainly what has got everybody worried Coinbase out in the last few minutes saying it has zero exposure, zero exposure to Genesis trading. But how easy is it to plot the connections?
7: It's difficult. You really do need to almost get out a pen and paper and try to map it. Uh, we, but it all really boils down, Guy, to your point to counterparty risk. It just feels like the crypto industry, over and over again over the last few months, is learning the lessons of traditional finance. Mm-hmm. Counterparty risk being one of them. Uh, in terms of the news we got this morning, it's really interesting because Genesis is one of the companies that falls under the umbrella of Digital Currency Group. That is helmed by Barry Silbert. He's one of the big kingmakers in crypto. You hear a lot about SPF. Mm-hmm. You hear a lot about CZ. You don't hear a lot from Barry Silbert by design. Unlike uh, some of the other high-profile crypto people out there, he rarely does interviews. He rarely goes to conferences in the past few years. And uh, He has a big empire, so it's going to be interesting to see what this means. So. I'm confused about the Genesis-Gemini scenario.
0: Is this that the companies are retrenching because the whole industry is just seizing up a bit and people are panicking and taking out their money? Or is there some real exposure
7: somewhere to tokens that are actually now zero? I think the problem with Gemini, so of course they were borrowing from Genesis, or they had this relationship with Genesis when it came to specifically their yield product, which was called earn. Whether they had similar relationships with other brokers, with other lenders, is unclear at this point. Or whether Genesis, they had all their eggs in that basket. So, that's what's trying to be chased down right now, trying to disentangle and see, actually, how many counterparties did Gemini actually have?
1: Casey, if people can get their money out of the exchanges in the way that they want, where, is that, where, where are those coins going? If they keep them in crypto, are they putting them in other exchanges? Are they putting it in cold storage? What's, what are people doing right now to protect themselves?
7: I think one of the more interesting narratives to follow after the dust settles, maybe after news stops breaking at this pace, will be sort of the deglobalization of the crypto market or the decentralization. Because just in the past week, you've seen billions of dollars come off of exchanges. There's always been this sort of rally and cry in crypto not your keys, not your coins, which means that if you have your bitcoin at an exchange, you don't own that. You have to actually have it in cold storage in your own wallet or else it's not yours. And that's sort of uh, died away over the past couple years or so, but now there is this big push again that, you know, you really got to get off exchanges. That's what that's the movement that you're seeing now, but at the same time you have CZ, for example, from Binance trying to really position themselves as the savior. He tweeted about a recovery fund, for example, doing, I don't know, central bank-like activities. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see. It does feel like the crypto industry is at a precipice right now.
0: Yeah, it it, it really does. Hey, I just want to update you guys on some breaking headlines here. Um, Apparently, uh, ECB officials may favor a 50 basis point rate hike in December rather than 75. Um, mm. The euro is moving off its highs uh, on the news. I mean, in some ways, this is no surprise, Guy. We were all kind of prepped for a downshift, whether we're looking at the ECB or the Fed. Um, but potentially, maybe some confirmation.
1: Yeah, I think I think there was an expectation that. Actually, do you know what? It's been really interesting listening to Christine Lagarde recently. She has been sounding significantly more hawkish, mm-hmm. and there has been this sort of growing expectation that the the ECB is going to be tightening aggressively i think if the fed pivots down to a 50 basis point hike i think that's going to make it easier for the ecb and there is clearly division on the governing yeah. council well clearly also division.
0: 50 bips is still 50 bips exactly like, and they're for not Europe, cutting that's still rates a very big number <laughs> yeah um anyway wanted to bring you those headlines there uh, hey katie before we let you go one one question you're trying to answer over the next 24 hours on crypto
7: What happens to Genesis? It's a very short term uh, answer that I'm looking for. But again, we know that they've hired advisors, they're exploring options. What does that mean? Uh, I would love the answer to that. Also, again, just Trying to follow the web, follow the money, and uh, <laughs> see what what the next shoe to drop is. No one has a firm answer for me. Katie looks more tired now than she did last Friday, which <laughs> should tell everyone a lot of
0: things. Uh, Katie, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Katie Greifeld joining us uh, on all things crypto. Um, I don't envy Katie having to suss all this out. Um, and Guy, tomorrow is kind of your Super Bowl over there in the UK.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think we've had two this week. One was the the Airbus interview, and, and now this. Oh, sure, um, sure, sure. This is like which is nice. I two two Super Bowls in one week. I'll definitely take that. Uh, yeah, the big fiscal events. Uh, the awesome statement from the Chancellor of the Exchequer tomorrow morning. I think it's ten thirty. I can't be precise on that. That was the latest latest time I heard. It's going to be really interesting. Um, yeah. It is the tax and no spend budget. Basically, uh, it is austerity 2.0 for the UK. It sounds fun. It really isn't.
0: No, it really doesn't sound fun, actually. (laughs) And again, that headline needs to be officials considering a 50 basis point hike rather than 75. See you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.